Hey folks, and sorry for the delay in getting this episode out. I thought that the one perk of all this social distancing and face covering stuff was supposed to be fewer or no colds, but it turns out that kindergarten germs are just more powerful than all of that. But here we are, it's May 2021, and as we head into the home stretch toward our Prognosis Ohio summer break, we're gonna be turning back to a subject that we've talked about many times on the show and from different angles, and that's cancer care. But while we've focused in the past on disparities in cancer care, as well as prevention and screening, and you can check out those episodes at prognosisohio.com, today we're looking at a different kind of question, namely how we might mitigate the negative effects of cancer treatments themselves, which, while increasingly effective as the science develops, can also cause patients extreme pain and discomfort. While today's episode isn't about Ohio per se, we are talking with a physician and researcher, Dr. Benjamin Kaffenberger, a dermatologist at Ohio State who's leading an effort to develop drugs to address hand-foot-skin reaction, a common adverse event that many cancer patients experience. As always, before turning to our conversation, I'd like to ask you, if you like this episode of Prognosis Ohio, please help us to make more by becoming a Patreon for just $3 a month. This is a shoestring operation, a project we pull together late at night and on weekends, but podcasting costs also actually add up to some serious money. As listeners know, I'm going to be spending June and July rethinking the show and getting ready for a reboot in the fall. We use whatever support we receive to pay for the technical platforms, recording, hosting, things like that, so we can keep spotlighting community voices and important issues in Ohio. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash prognosisohio. That's patreon.com slash prognosisohio. And hey, thanks. I really appreciate it. Today's guest is Dr. Benjamin Kaffenberger, a dermatologist at Ohio State's Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Kaffenberger specializes in hospital dermatology and works with individuals who have complex medical diseases, drug and allergic reactions, and autoimmune skin diseases. I'll be including links in our show notes with information on the specific details of today's conversation, so be sure to check those out. Okay, now to my conversation with Dr. Benjamin Kaffenberger. Dr. Benjamin Kaffenberger, thanks so much for being on the show. It's great to meet you. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right in. Uh, you're, you're the lead on a clinical trial funded by the NIH and being carried out for the pharma startup on quality. Do I have that right so far? Exactly, yes. Yeah. And, and you're working to develop a drug that you hope uh, will help cancer patients with hand, foot, skin reaction. Um, the name sounds straightforward enough. It has words that I know in it. But it's also a bit vague. So I, I wonder if we can just start with some basics to kind of get listeners going into the conversation. What is hand, foot, skin reaction and, and how is it related to cancer care? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so hand, foot, skin reaction, it's a relatively common condition that's occurring with new targeted treatments for cancer. Um, this can be closely uh, in appearance to a condition called pulmoplantar erythrodysesthesia, but they have slightly different mechanisms. This pulmoplantar erythrodysesthesia, uh, or PPE, this is maybe what patients who have had cancer 10 years ago, 20 years ago may be more familiar with, but this is the painful burning that patients would get during chemotherapy or soon after chemotherapy, and that's with the traditional chemotherapies. Now, with the advent of better and more targeted treatments for cancer, um, these uh, treatments specifically that block a receptor called VEGFR, um, 
we found that patients started to get a different type of reaction, something that's a little bit more delayed, but often also shows up on their hands and their feet, especially in the areas of pressure. And that's what this hand-foot-skin reaction is. What typically occurs is within several weeks of starting um, several specific medications that we can talk about in in a little bit if you're interested, um, patients will notice uh, calluses develop, pain, corns, uh, blisters even develop, uh, especially on the feet in the in the areas where they they put weight on their feet, uh, and then also the areas of friction on their hands as well too. It it doesn't sound like a whole lot, but it's extremely pa- painful for the patients who suffer from it. Right. So so this would be even things just like I mean I know talking with cancer patients and, you know, luckily my experience with cancer, I didn't have anything that led to this, but any kind of like chafing and rubbing with clothing or putting shoes on or any kind of, I mean, these things can be really exacerbated by the kind of treatments that people go through. Walking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, walking, the the most subtle things you need to do to take care of yourself. um, That's extremely painful with this condition. So, so 100%, I mean, this is a huge detriment on the quality of life for, for a patient. So getting your shoes on in the first place, going, trying, to go to work, you know, especially when these targeted medications otherwise have pretty good side effect profiles. Otherwise, uh, they're not the traditional chemotherapies that are destroying every fast moving or fast growing cell in your body. They're targeted to your specific type of cancer, but all of a sudden, uh, it's, it's painful to walk. Uh, if you work with your hands, it's painful to work with your hands. Uh, and so these can be very, very challenging to deal with. So as the the lead on this project, uh, in, in, in the most lay terms possible, I know that's a little tricky with um, pharmaceutical trials, but h- how does the drug um, and the, dr- the drugs that you're working on, I mean, how do they work? What do they do? Uh, and how do they get at this problem? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, some some of this is still being worked out in the first place. And so the, the reason we think that this is helpful, there is a, uh, this, I mentioned a specific type of um, targeted oncologic agent. They block a receptor called VEGFR uh, or vascular endothelial growth factor. That seems to be the reason why this these toxicities are occurring preferentially on the hands and the feet with this. Um, and the drug that we're using is actually a, a relaxing factor. It's nitroglycerin. It's a it's a version of nitroglycerin um, that's also used for for relaxation of um, inner um, vessel and sweat gland cell um, cells. Uh, and so we think that there's there's a factor or there's a reason um, uh, in that relaxation factor that's giving it some effect in this condition. But some of this is still being worked out as well. So it's not fully clear. Far along in some by some metrics and also at the beginning of thinking through the larger problem, it seems to me, from reading the material. You're absolutely right. And uh, a lot of these, you know, we learn more as we determine what's um, effective and what's more effective over time. So, um, you know, there's nothing out there right now to treat patients that's really specifically targeted to this toxicity. We have some medications that are, that are over the counter. Um, we have some anti-inflammatories that we try. But there's not ever been any study that says one treatment is better than another treatment. So this would be the first to to do something like that. And there's a progression that we learn more about the disease and more about the entity as we determine which treatments are the most effective for it. So the studies that you're working on are limited, as I understand, and tell me if I'm getting any of this wrong, to, to cancer patients undergoing, um, you call it VEGF, or a, a vascular endothelial growth 
receptor okay. inhibitor treatment. Right? Exactly. That's a mouthful. Exactly. I did it. I yeah. made it to the other side. Uh, but you know, maybe you can just tell us a little bit more about what this is and, and what I'm also interested in specifically. You know, we've talked about cancer research on this show. We've talked with people with cancer, about cancer, uh, the policy side uh, of, of cancer treatment. Uh, does this stand to help people with many different kinds of cancers, some specific cancers? Like, is it located uh, particularly? Yeah, it, it depends. So, um, so this type of receptor, so th- another uh, term that people may be familiar with is tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, so this VEGFR in, in, uh, receptor is a, a form of a tyrosine kinase inhibitor or some people may see TKI associated with, with cancer therapies. These are targeted therapies. So instead of, again, like I mentioned earlier, destroying every single different cell type that's fast growing in the body, these are targeted to cells that ex- overexpress a specific um, enzyme or overexpress a specific um, product that's causing these cells to, to divide rapidly. So it's not, it's not uh, affecting hair, for example. Um, and so there's a number of medications out there that have an effect. So sinitinib and serafinib are, are some classic ones that are used in renal cell kidney cancer. Um, and there's more targeted versions as well, too, now that, that are used. They're used for thyroid cancer, uh, liver cancer. Um, and even there's some intestinal cancer. So this is where we're getting to this point where, where um, oncologists are having the opportunity to treat patients based on their mutation, the, the, the actual cancer cells, what, what is different about their cancer cells compared to the rest of their body, what protein is being overexpressed, and, and using a medication to specifically target it. Now, at this point, I mean, it, it is, you know, specific um, uh, approvals or there's there's only specific can- types of cancer that, that this is being approved for. Um, there's only specific types of cancers that tend to overexpress um, this receptor. But um, as we learn more, uh, there's been multiple more approvals or there's been more and more frequent. Serafinib and sininib were the first, but over the past couple of years, there's been multiple additional FDA approvals um, in this condition or, or that uh, yeah. approvals for cancers that overexpress. So for, forgive the very basic question. I'm just I'm just a policy professor here, right? So, w- what does it mean to overexpress? You've used that word a couple of times. Uh, it sounds like a, a rather technical term in your field, but could you kind of unpack it for us a little bit? Yeah. Um, so so by overexpress, some sort of marker that's that's triggering the cell to divide, the cancer cell to keep dividing faster than it normally should. Okay. So like there's a normal level of expression and this one just isn't shutting down when you need it to. 100%. Yes. I mean, we all have tumor suppressors in, in our uh, DNA and in our cells. Um, and often when those aren't operating normally, um, there's some sort of marker that's, that's present in these cells to keep dividing and dividing and dividing. For a long time, the assumption was that cancer was so serious and, and treatment so intense that patients were just going to have to kind of suck it up, right? Endure all of these ancillary hardships. And the pain was kind of, it seemed to be expected. Like, you know, uh, and, and this is a different generation. Um, a while back, I read Siddhartha Mukherjee's, you know, wonderful Emperor of All Maladies, a book about cancer. He calls it a biography of cancer. Uh, which tells a lot of this history. So you're focusing on this idea of cancer supportive care or the treatment of conditions that arise from cancer medication. So you're not trying to cure cancer here. You're trying to deal with the ancillary effects of a lot of what seems to be on offer. So do you slot into this kind of like 
post-Mukherjee uh, era of it's unacceptable to have treatments that just blast people, that we need to help them live through their cancer treatments. Otherwise, not only are they going to be miserable, but they may actually stop their treatments. 100%. And I do also need to be clear that I'm a dermatologist. I'm not an oncologist. So I'm not actually prescribing right. the, the chemotherapies or the targeted agents for their cancer. Um, you know, So my, my role is specifically in supporting these patients. But you're absolutely right. I mean, so you know, at, at one point it was, you know, you're going to get chemotherapy. You're going to lose all your hair. Your, your mouth is going to be so blistered up. You're not going to be able to eat for several days. You're going to be in the hospital. Uh, and your blood counts are going to be so low that you're going to be at a high risk for an infection. There's nothing we can do about it. That's what we have to do if we're going to treat your cancer. Um, but without a doubt, I mean, there's, there's a proliferation of targeted treatments. We're learning more about the cancers. Um, we're we're um, treating them more at the root as opposed to these old chemotherapies that just destroy every fast-moving cell, fast-growing cell in your body. Um, but with that being said, there's still significant toxicities, and, and it's not just ones that um, tyrosine kinase inhibitors that, that uh, treat this VEGFR um, receptor. It's not just them. There's other ones as well, too, that are still causing significant toxicities and even unacceptable toxicities, both for the oncologist and for the patient as well, too. Um, and so we know, um, you know, a goal of this study is, is to keep oncologists from having to actually dose reduce. So keep mm -hmm. oncologists from saying, uh, you have cancer, uh, our treatment is working, but your skin is in so much pain, it's not worth staying on the, that dose and we're going to cut it in half. So our goal of the study is to say, uh, yes, you know, this, this treatment is working for your cancer, um, but we're going to try to add on this medication to treat the side effect so that we can keep you on the dose that we know is working and appropriately treating your cancer. So can you give us a snapshot? I mean, here we are in uh, April, well, on the cusp of May uh, 2021, and you know, how do you feel the, the trial is going? How do you talk about a trial at this stage and sort of, you know, I, I spent some time on the, um, the, the you know, with, with, with the website for the, the company that is, um, you know, supporting this whole effort, and they're very careful to qualify language to say, look, we're not, you know, a trial's a trial. You, we, we're optimistic. We think we were onto something, but we also need to be careful. So how, how do you feel about how this is going at this stage? Well, it seems to be going okay. I mean, I, I think something that, that that to be clear about is that I'm, I'm a blinded investigator as well, too. So um, although I've we have uh, put patients through the study uh, and we've had seen patients improve, um, I, I am blinded as well, too. So I don't actually know who has medication, who has a placebo in, in this, this uh, um, uh, clinical trial. But... This, without a doubt, suffered from some, some early challenges, especially with COVID. I mean, who would have anticipated that a pandemic was going to shut things down? And that, that's really what, what it did with all of our human subjects research. Um, you know, we're trying to provide opportunities for, for patients, but at a, for a period of time, it was highly likely that the idea of just coming into the office to get this medication, this investigational medicine, the, the risks were probably higher than the potential benefits or, you know, without knowing... Um, more about it, it, it was very unclear. So we had huge challenges early on. Now, with that being said, uh, we've developed a very good standard operating protocol for, for getting patients in, getting patients um, out of our uh, clinic safely with, with minimal exposures to uh, 
any staff. Uh, and we've also, the company's been fantastic about working with us to develop telemedicine protocols as well, too, which isn't easy to do in clinical research because in clinical research, we have to have so many hands-on assessments, and these assessments are critical to getting an approval for the, the company. Um, but this company has been fantastic with working um, with us to, to allow us to put those in place, to keep our patients safe, to keep it convenient for our patients, um, and to adapt to the challenges of COVID-19. So um, it, it seems like things are picking up. We're, we are collecting more interest um, from patients. Um, and I think patients are more willing to, to uh, look into clinical research for something like, like this, something that affects their quality of life, but not actually their survival. Um, now that COVID is um, uh, diminishing throughout our state, or the numbers at least are diminishing and vaccines are, are more widely available. You know, I'm glad that you clarified the role of you know dermatology and oncology in thinking about this like total patient care scenario here. It's really important. It seems to me, you know, as a medical educator, that there's still but also just as a human being in our society, that there's still some misunderstanding about what dermatologists do and where the lines are drawn in various kinds of moments. I think back to the old, I don't know if you remember the old Seinfeld episode. Seinfeld. Yeah, the famous one, right? And just understanding how dermatologists and oncologists work together in something like this. Uh, I, I guess I would just want to ask you, you know, is this a natural kind of like team uh, effort to, to address this? It, has this taken some time to be able to carve out a role for dermatologists to play in these kinds of moments? And are, are oncologists sympathetic and, and really excited about this as you are? You know, I, I think oncologists are excited to have interested interested dermatologists, with, without a doubt. Um, you know, there there are definitely challenges, but I, I think there's there's changes that are happening as well, too. And, and you know, so... so um, the old pimple popper episode in Seinfeld was one thing, but, uh, you know, new changes that are happening is, is the proliferation of skin surgery. So especially skin cancers, uh, mm -hmm. 20 years ago, dermatologists weren't doing that much actually skin cancer treatments. It was diagnosis, but a lot of times it was referring to general surgeons or plastic surgeries for the actual treatments. Um, and so the time kind of commitment of dermatologists has, has changed uh, so they're not taking care of as many medical patients. So it's a non-surgical type of, of um, treatments. So that, that is something that, that's changed. But, but at the same time, it seems like over the past five or 10 years, that's really when, when there's been a group of dermatologists that have created these supportive care societies where they said that our specialty or this specific specialty is going, going to be uh, focus on taking care, supporting the oncologist, um, and making sure that a patient can get an appropriate drug uh, without regard to the toxicity that's happening to the skin or, or managing that toxicity for the oncologist. So I, I do think it is a, a very um, um, beneficial uh, symbiotic relationship. Now, what tends to happen, though, is oncologists generally become a lot more familiar and a lot more... Um, uh, so, so new drugs tend to... Uh, um, be seen a lot in dermatology practice. So you start a new drug that's never been used before on a clinical trial or soon after that clinical trial. And the oncologists aren't going to be as familiar whether this is a toxicity from the new drug or whether this is something completely different, whether this is just a, you know, a, a patient getting acne or psoriasis for, for some other, other reason. Um, and so, so that's when dermatologists are really, all dermatologists are really, really involved. The oncologists do become a lot more comfortable and familiar with that 
uh, skin toxicity profile that happens with these drugs over time, though. And then what we, we tend to see is we see fewer and fewer referrals. Uh, and then we're just seeing the most most severe referrals that we can help out with because the oncologists are very comfortable with treating the patients at that point. That's really helpful. I mean, I've never mentioned it on this show, but I was actually, as, as a teenager, I was in the first Accutane trial, like the, the first wow. you know month or something. I mean, talk about incredible surveillance of my body. I wasn't allowed to go outside. I was being tested, I think, three times a week or something wow. like that. You know, um, So certainly a lot of care was taken and that drug has uh, you know, been, been a real miracle worker for a lot of, a lot of people. Um, and that's what we hope from all of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it gets a little bit of a bad reputation, but, but it's, it's, you know, there's nothing that uh, takes care of acne like, like isotretinoin or Accutane. So you've got this really promising drug, right? Or you're, this, this, this idea that you're working through, right? Uh, I shouldn't say promising, but I should say you're, you're, you're cautiously hopeful. optimistic. Hopeful, yeah. So, hopeful, yeah. Um, and, you know, so here we are um, talking actually on the day after President Biden gave uh, a State of the Union address. And like presidents do, he brought up pharmaceutical pricing. He brought up all, all of these accessibility issues. In fact, we pay the highest prescription drug prices of anywhere in the world, right here in America. Nearly three times for the same drug, nearly three times what other countries pay. We have to change that, and we can. Because, of course, you're a dermatologist because you want to get drugs to patients. How do you think about this within, with these kinds of um, promising drugs? I mean, pharmaceutical trials are expensive, and we want to keep the cost down so patients can actually get these kinds of things. I mean, is that part of your... I know you're the dermatologist here. You're not the uh, the, yeah. the policy person, but or the business person. But do you think about that kind of aspect as you're doing clinical work? Like, you know, how are we going to do that? One hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. We think about this every day. It comes up every day with our with our patients, and it's it's a huge challenge. Um, you know, where, where to start? I mean, there, there's there's so many challenges challenges with the PBMs, with with uh, companies making their profits in the United States and not the rest of the world. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of challenges. Yes. Uh, so, so the answer is yes. Research is, is very expensive, uh, to conduct. And I think that's a challenge. And so, I mean, companies should recuperate those funds. Um, I dislike that they recuperate those funds in the United States without so much in the rest of Europe or, or, uh, the rest of the developed world. I mean, there's no doubt that most of the profits for pharmaceutical industry comes from the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that should be shared over the development, developmental developed world. Um, you know, and then, then another issue that's coming up are the, the, uh, pharmacy benefit managers. And this is a huge challenge as well, too. Um, there, um, there's a lot of control that they're taking over the process, not just from the physicians. Um, but also, I mean, there's, it's a very, uh, murky kind of backrooms deals, rebates here, rebates there, uh, you know, and, and these pharmaceutical benefit managers are buying the insurance companies that they're, they're, they're profiting so much. So um, I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a policy person to tell you what the answer is, but I mean, I think those are two big issues that, that need to be settled. Any kind of way in which the system gets uh, blocked up. So you, you know, have the science, you have the products, and then you have this uh, inability sometimes to get them to patients. That's got to be really frustrating for a scientist who's on the front end trying to just say, hey, we're just trying to figure out what works here. Yeah. I mean, what I've, what I've heard from some companies that are in, in competitive environments where, uh, you know, there's 12 drugs uh, that block a similar molecule and um, they're all kind of in the market at the same time is that they're doing the PBMs are, are really kind of doing some 
unique stuff with which ones they put on formulary and how how they price them and and it's not or which ones they put on formulary and what what their order is and it's not always yeah. you know price based or uh, there doesn't seem like there's an incentive for the companies to really reduce their overall prices um, and it's more about working with these PBMs. So here you are, you know, you're making your way through this process. I mean, do you even dare to kind of put a time frame on it or, you know, you speak in terms of hope. So I'm guessing to some degree that is about the hope that there is a, um, you know, some findings. I mean, what are you internally working and hoping for to be able to know whether this is really going to do what you want it to do? Well, the company is hoping to to complete enrollment. I believe this towards uh, the summer or towards the end of the summer. So, um, you know, I think the most important thing after that is is taking a look at the data and, and making sure that the data is supportive of a of a new drug approval for this process. That's not a fast thing to get that through the FDA, though. Um, you know, for for patients that have hand foot skin reaction uh, that aren't on this trial, you know, hopefully, yeah. best case scenario, a year longer, a little bit longer. Um, but right. the first step would be the summer of completing the enrollment and, and actually being able to, to review the uh, results once they're unblinded. So looking at the results of the people that uh, actually had the drug versus those that got placebo. Yeah, I wonder if people's perceptions have been skewed because of COVID. You know, I mean, we got used to this idea that we just developed this extremely rapid vaccination through the emergency use authorization process, but that's not how pharmaceutical development works in general and never will work. So I I wonder if people's expectations about other things like the kind of product you're working on uh, will kind of get caught up in that a little bit. You have to wonder. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they made that the emergency use approval so fast. Yeah, you absolutely have to wonder. The the FDA does have fast track approvals as well too so uh, for a number of new um, oncologic treatments that are uh, first in class they can try to try to fast fast track them right well dr kaffenberger i want to thank you for you know sharing a little bit about this even in this kind of early stage of things and we'll continue to you know keep track of the work you're doing and hopefully get some good news down the road thank you very much for having me This episode of Prognosis Ohio was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter at, at @prognosisohio and check out our website at prognosisohio.com. There you're going to be able to listen to past episodes and find out how you can support the show. As always, we encourage you to reach out with your suggestions and your feedback, and you'll find links on our website to do just that. We always welcome ideas for themes you'd like to hear us talk about on the show as well as guests you'd like to see us have. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks everybody and be well.